0: Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Anchor. How are we doing this morning? John and uh, Bonnie Jean did such a good job talking about this book. I just get to play the role of Vanna White. So um, here it is, you guys. It is beautiful. You should buy it. Um, You should help others so that they don't have to buy it because they don't have the means to buy it. Take advantage of this. There are still copies in the lobby. It will be a resource not only in helping you track along with what we're doing here throughout this teaching series, but also in your own times of Jesus, with Jesus, as John mentioned, to grow your understanding of who you are, who he is. So don't miss out on this. It is a beautiful coffee table decoration and something to help you grow in your relationship with God as well. The two You know, rarely do those two things coexist, and they do here. Hey, we're going to start at the very beginning. It's a fitting that we begin in the beginning. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter one. But, like for many of us, maybe we're new to the Bible or uh, we need to kind of be reminded and refreshed what happens in Genesis chapter one. So, for all of us, I just want to set the stage a little bit. In the beginning is when God creates. Over successive days, he he puts sun in its place and moon in its place, and he makes the waters, and he makes all of the creatures that fill this earth to this day. And on the sixth day, he creates us, humans. And this is a section of that account in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. So if you have a Bible, you can open to it. Otherwise, it's going to be on the screen for ease of access. And it begins like this. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The question, who am I, is something that every one of us asks all of the time. Now, I don't mean by that like you asking it audibly, like looking up at the sky. Who am I? If you have done that recently, I'm available to meet this week. I've got some space to talk and pray and help you, and we can talk together. That'll be great. Um, But I do think that every one of us, whether or not we ask it actually audibly, we are asking it, right? Right? We ask it by like the places, we ask it, or try to answer the question rather, by the clothes we put on in the morning. And we look in front of the mirror and we say, does, does this look good? Does this make me look good? Does this reflect who I am or who I believe I am? We ask that question by, as we're applying for jobs, does this profession interface with who I am? My gifts, my skills, my talent is this going to be a relational fit what's the workplace environment going to look like will there be space for me to be me we ask this question where the places we live i remember when i uh, our family moved to tacoma i was so proud you guys of being able to answer the question where do you live by saying tacoma you know tacoma i'm from tacoma right? i don't know maybe just me we're always asking this question, who am I, in various ways that maybe we're not even completely aware of. I remember when I was at a critical juncture in my life, I had graduated high school, I was going off to college, and I looked at a friend in that summer between high school and college, and I said, I think I'm going to become a hippie in college. Um, it was a short-lived phase, and which is good for all of us, especially my wife. Um, but what was I doing there? I was like, like thinking about like who I am, maybe the music I liked at the time or what have you, and I was thinking this new place, this new time offered a chance for me to kind of like be me, to be me, right? Who am I? The question that is inescapable, that it's, it's always on our minds, But it's not only something that's like on our minds, it's not only something that we ask without even knowing we're asking it, but it's something that the greatest minds throughout history have sought to answer. Karl Marx, uh, a brilliant um, economist and social philosopher, answered the question of who am I with the answer money. He thought that if we could deduce or reduce who a person is to economic situations and and then actually solve the economic inequities and problems then everything would be right in the world and in so doing he answered the question of who are you by basically saying you are connected inextricably connected to money to economy to the economic situation and similarly but different freud the father of so much of what we understand as as psychology today, said actually, not money, but sex is who you are. That at the most reducible aspect of who you are is sex. And that's where we get this kind of concept today of sexual identity. It's connected not to, uh, actually pretty recent in the history of thought, to the work of Sigmund Freud. And then, again, similarly but differently, the philosopher Nietzsche said, actually, it's not money or sex, but it's power dynamics. And all of us are enmeshed in these power dynamics where certain people that have power over us impose and impinge their power on us. And so we are essentially trapped under their foot. So the goal of life is to get power so you can impose and impinge your power on other people. The challenge with each of these is that it takes that aspect of who you are, one aspect, and it reduces our identity to that one thing. Similarly, you know, Madison Avenue thought they could answer the question with consumption. If you can buy, then you can be. And if you buy the next thing, then you'll continue to be. And if you don't have the means to continue to buying, then you will cease to be because your identity is connected to what you wear and the plastic that decorates your home. Again, the challenge is is that you cannot take an aspect of who you are no matter how loud, pronounced, and important it is, and reduce it to all of who you are. He says, "Scripture says Scripture says that that is that is not a, you're not able to do that." You see, Scripture, rather than reducing who you are to an aspect of who who you are, enlarges who you are. Think about the word "image of God." It's hard to define. Some of us have been around church for a while and we've like heard the image of God and maybe never even heard a teaching on the image of God. And let me just tell you, as a preacher, the reason why you haven't heard a teaching on the image of God is because it's like elusive and poetic and, and hard to put in categories. It's, 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 it's weird and big and how do you define it? And how do you make points and a bullet point and all that kind of stuff? How do you do it? And that's part of the point. Because the image of God is something that should cause us to experience awe. And it's something that we should never write off or see as normal in a way that would domesticate this beautiful, interesting, awe-inducing word and term, image of God the creation story that I talked about where God is creating the world and everything in it you know it's interesting that the animals it says God created them according to their kind and there's it goes on it says and God created them according to their kind and, and all these animals that God is creating he creates them according to their kind and then he gets to humanity And rather than saying God created them according to their kind, it says this. It says, and God made them in his image. You see, while everything else in creation reflects everything else in creation, we reflect the creator, not creation. We bear the image of God. We were not created according to another kind. We are created according to the creator, which puts us in this unique, beautiful, and mysterious place in this world and in this creation. The Hebrew word for image is interesting. It's this word, "salem," And every, else, every other time throughout the history or throughout the Old Testament, when this word is used, it is used to describe an idol, something that Israel or other pagan nations make as some type of object of worship to reflect some type of God. And throughout the Old Testament, idolatry is seen as something as unequivocally negative. It's a bad thing. Why? Because it takes creation and it makes creation a part of uh, your worship. And so it steals worship and diminishes worship from the creator and, re- re- and it orients it towards creation. And, and God's like, no, that's not going to work. You can't worship creation, worship creator. But there's another thing that's interesting here that we often miss. Not only does it diminish your worship idolatry, but idolatry diminishes your sense of self. Because when you worship something in creation as an idol, you miss the fact that it's the same word that God uses to describe you. That in a sense, and this is maybe weird to understand, you are the idol of the real God that you are the image of the real God. This is this noble place that you have been placed. Just by being made, you bear the image of the real God. That means when you look at someone, you're looking at someone that should provoke wonder and cause you to look up, wow. As you see someone's gifts or talents or quirky personality, all of these things, apart from the sin that that person has, is a reflection of the God who made them. You cannot, our scripture doesn't reduce who you are. It enlarges who you are. It opens who you are up into something that is interesting and beautiful and, 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 and are awe-inspiring. So what I want to do is I'm going to say one thing uh, and then get to kind of some of our, our, our points that we're talking about. Some of you Bible, um, theolo- Bible scholars and theologians in the room, you might say, well, yes, the image of God is actually affected by sin, though, so it's different from the original creation." Yes, we're going to talk about sin next week, but I think it's totally appropriate to spend the whole time talking about how awesome the image of God is. So that's what we're going to do. Three questions that I think all of us have, that the image of God uniquely answers, that I would say nothing, uh, no sociologist, no pop um, psychologist, no, uh, no great thinker could actually answer apart from Scripture. The, the first one that the image of God uniquely answers that nothing else does is, how do I live? How do I live? Like, what I mean is, is that there's, this is the question of Ethics. Like, how do I treat another person? What is right and what is wrong? How do I engage in relationship with other people and and be just? What does that look like? How do I live? And it's important on the front end to understand that, like, this image of God thing includes soccer moms and the meth addicted, Republicans and Democrats, gay and straight, Buddhists, bellhops and billionaires, every single person. So, when you think about how do I live, it begins with you live in a way that reflects your understanding that the person you're in relationship with is no less than an image bearer. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, it's interesting going forward. It's, it's this um, early on in the Old Testament, it's like this advocates for capital punishment. Now, I'm not trying to advocate for any political thing, I'm not. Um, what I want to communicate is that the reason for this, the capital punishment in Genesis 9 is it says those who kill the image, those who harm the image of God and take life from somebody bearing the image of God will have their life taken away as well. Why, what, what's going on there? So what Scripture is saying is that it is so sacred to, to confront someone that it bears the image of God, that to, to take the life of that person is to misunderstand what God is all about. And, and so actually all of Western ethics is built on this premise of that you are surrounded by image bearers. And so we are to not just respect each other, but be in reverent awe of each other. C.S. Lewis, an author that I love, um, describes this situation in this way. He says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals whom you joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to perpetually be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be that of of that kind. And it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, and no presumption. I love the opening sentence there. There are no ordinary people there is only cause for reverence as you behold one another. The lobby conversations that you'll have after this are more than just words traded back and forth. They're given, the words are given by image bearers and heard by image bearers. So I wanna invite you to do something, and maybe it's a little risky, but you can trust me. I want you to look around the room right now. Look around the room. All you see are image bearers. I want you. I want you to keep trusting me. Uh, I want you to close your eyes, and don't worry, nobody's going to steal anything from you. Um, <laughs> close your eyes, and as you're closing your eyes, call to mind someone from work or from your neighborhood, someone you see around town that you have a hard time seeing as valuable. maybe you even audibly dismiss them. Now as you're opening your eyes call to mind that they are valuable in God's sight and that they bear the image of God. That the ones we can casually dismiss are never dismissed by the creator. That he is endowed every living human with his signature and he has not erased it from anyone what if you and i lived in that manner the next question is not just it's not just what do i do Hopefully, we've started to answer that question by just saying the, the, the room is filled with no ordinary people. But like, the next question is, it's like, where's my purpose? Another question we're all asking in one way or another all the time. Uh, professor and uh, thinker Anthony Burrow did this study where he put, put all these people at the base of this hill, like at the bottom of the hill, and had them look up towards the hill, and he asked them to climb up the hill, to get up the hill, and he, he studied he, beforehand, he, he asked them, you know, how what's your sense of purpose? Do you have a sense of purpose in your life? And they would either say yes or no, or some variation thereof, and what he found after the study is that the people with a strong sense of purpose, when they looked up the hill, uh, they, they were, and, and asked to get up the hill they were disabled to say yeah i could do that easily that's something that i could manage it's scalable it's fine i can do it and the people with the diminished sense of purpose when they looked up at the hill they said no not me i'm not interested and so what he found was or he concluded was that just like a sense of purpose that you have in your life affects your ability to see the world so you can see things that would otherwise be obstacles as easily surmountable if you have a strong sense of purpose. And maybe you've heard things like this. Maybe you've seen some of these studies or seen somebody post about something like it on Instagram, and they're all out there. Purpose has been connected to, uh, uh, to greater amounts of health, physical, emotional, spiritual health. Purpose has been connected to wealth, to achieving economic and financial success. It's, it's actually one of our values here at Anchor. We think every one of us has purpose, and we'll talk about one aspect of that here in a second. I, but I, I wanna say that like, there are two types of purpose, at least two types. Don't hold me to that, at least two types. The first is what I'm calling chosen purpose. And this is a purpose that, go figure, you have to choose. It's connected to the, prof- the professions and the hobbies and the relationships you have. There is a chosen purpose, and you're, you're, you're thinking about, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And chosen purpose is beautiful and rad and fantastic, and it can increase the value of, and health and all of that of your life. But I would also say chosen purpose is also fragile. Why? Because it requires you to keep choosing it. And all of us have been in situations where we felt depressed or we've been down or we've doubted ourselves or our abilities. Maybe we've questioned if another cho- uh, choice or chance should lead us in another direction. And so anytime we interface with any of those things, there is the cho- we experience the fragility of chosen purpose. There's a questioning of should I keep doing this thing? And that's not to diminish it. It's just the reality of that situation. But there's another type of purpose, which I'm calling given purpose. And while its chosen purpose is fragile, given purpose is actually inescapable. It's something given by God to you. It's something that you actually, you may not choose to engage in it, but it's part of who you are. And actually, the less you engage in it, the more you feel like you're betraying who you are, and you feel inner tension. This is why, because it's given to you by being an image bearer. We read this at the beginning, but Genesis chapter 128 gets at one aspect of this says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. There's this word that like we don't like to use because our whole country was built on escaping rule and, and being free, you know, but this idea of rule is in, like connected to us being human. God hear me. God has given you the responsibility and role as being his kings and queens over this creation to steward and exercise the rule of God as you as you live out the image of God in the places that you have influence and responsibility. God has called you to rule. And that means like in the cool rock sense like you rule but like also in the expressing the heart of God in the spheres that you inhabit. Bringing order to something. Where there's chaos, bringing order and, and, and rightness and correctness. This is why I think every human being has this endowed desire to look at this freshly mown lawn in spring. I'm only half joking. There's something in that, right? You're turning something that looked chaotic and unwieldy into something that brings, is ordered. I mean, every one of us has different definitions of clean, you know. Um, I have a different definition than my wife. Um, and it's often a tension point between us. But all of us, like, wants a level of orderedness to our home. We want it. And if it's not showing up in our home, then we're trying to probably use our energy in somewhere else to bring order somewhere else. And we don't have enough time to bring it into our, our home. We are predisposed to uh, bring order. And if we aren't, then there's something, there's, 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 we're actually moving away from how God has wired us. This is not um, just like a nice lawn and a good home. That's not like cleanliness. It's not cleanliness as close to godliness. It's like bringing, we are predisposed to bring chaos into order because that's what God did in the beginning. He looked over the chaotic waters and he created and he brought order. And there's this Hebrew word shalom that just means holistic flourishing. And it's like us as stewards of God's creation were called to bring shalom, God's shalom, into the world. This is, it's interesting. When you look at the rest of the Old Testament, anytime a bad uh, king or a bad emperor is, or, or empire is described, they're described as beasts, as beastly. Why? because they've left, they've, they've teched the power of being an image-bearer, but they've left the way of practicing being an image-bearer. So they created power structures that reinforce their own power and at the expense of other people. And so they're ruling, but they're not ruling like God. And so today, we don't use the language of beasts and the metaphor of beasts like the Old Testament does, but we use the language of toxic environments and toxic spaces. What is a toxic environment? It's a space where someone is is being an image bearer insofar as they're using the power that they have to rule, but they're using it in a way that is harmful and steals others' humanity. They're using the power without the the way God has called us to practice it. There's another verse that describes something of our purpose. Genesis 2.15, says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And there's that word uh, care of it is the Hebrew word shamrai. It means to protect or to look after, to ensure that something is safe. And so you take these words together, you take rule and you take care and you have a calling for all image bearers that we are to exercise the rule of God, not a rule of self and not the rule of sin, but the rule of God and to care. For what God has placed us in, the spheres that you inhabit, you are called to bring order to the chaos there. That is what you are called to do, to employ your gifts and your skills and your unique quirky personality to be an aspect, a funnel, an image, a reflection of the image of God into the places where you have influence and where you have responsibility. This is what it means to be an image bearer that reflects the actual way and heart of God. I talked uh, before the first gathering to a guy who said he was describing his family. His family uh, lives in Florida. And as you know, there's been uh, a, a, a storm, some storms there recently, maybe you've known. He said all his family's homes are beyond repair. He says he hasn't talked to one of his daughters for a little while. I know she's fine, but he's, he's, he's like, he can't get these thoughts out of his head. Why? Why when we see this thing, this tragedy and pain, why do we give lots of money? And why do we, we, why do we call governments to action? And, and, and why do we, we text numbers and send $10? Why do we do that? Like, yeah, maybe it's to get the guilt of responsibility off our back. Or, you know, Maybe that's some of it, but I think it's actually deeper than that. I think it's because we all bear the image of God and we are all predisposed to, to exercise rule and to exercise care. And I don't think sin can take that away, though it might diminish it if we live into sin, but it's actually part of who we are as image bearers. I talked to another person before this gathering, and she was describing something she does. She goes, she may, I make prayer blankets for people, mamas in the hospital, new mamas in the hospital, or people recovering from illness, and I, I put a little, write a little prayer on them, and I pray as I'm making this blanket, and I give them to these people, and, it, and, and it's like, what is that? That's like, that's like being an image bearer. I take the skills and interests I have and I utilize them towards rule and rightly ordering and shalom and caring. All of us have this sense of purpose that we're called to live into. And this is, I would say, less do another thing on your already busy schedule and more infuse what you're already doing with this image-bearing reflection of the heart of God. Vinoth Ramachandra, an uh, an Indian um, theologian, says all human beings are called to represent God's kingship through the whole range of human life on Earth, and God's rule is not the rule of a despot, but uh, that of a loving nurture of a caring parent. This is what we're called to image. This is who God is. Next question is: Who am I with? Versus, like, how do I live? What's my purpose? Who am I with? And I want to just say again that, like, there may be people that promise the answer to those questions apart from Scripture, but they will never deliver on their promises. Scripture uniquely answers these questions in us being image bearers and describing our role as humans. This is something that, that is offered to us by God's word and, and does not, is not offered to us by anything else. Who am I with? Jim Wilder, a neurotheologian, which is a fancy term, uh, says that there are three primal questions we all ask. Who am I? Who are my people? And what do, we, what do our people do? And by doing that, Wilder, he's a devoted Christian, he's saying that what he's saying is, like, we are inescapably, irrevocably relational beings, right? Some of us relearned this over the last three years where we had hold ourselves in for uh, safety or precaution, and then we found ourselves with this deep sense of loneliness and this vacuum of our mental health and emotional health suffered because of it. And this is happening on a large scale um, across our country and beyond this sense of like deficit of emotional and relational and spiritual health because we've been separated. And why? Because you're made in the image of God and we're called and we're, we're irrevocably, incurably relational. You can't take that out of us. We're, 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 it's woven into our fabric. My grandmother was a uh, was a pastor at a, a, a church in Seattle for a long time, and she led a grief group. And I remember years ago asking her, "How do you how do you lead this? How do you, how do you lead a grief group? It sounds messy, you know." And she goes, "I always make sure there's space on my shoulder for someone to put their head." It's a good way to lead a grief group. But what I heard her saying is that there is this physical proximity that healing requires. There is this relationality that we cry out for from the deep parts of ourselves. It's something that is a part of us being an image bearer. It's interesting um, that it talks about this in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Every, a week and a half before we do our Sunday teaching, we all, like with some of our staff, we get around a table and we pour over the text, we pray, and we draw out things that are interesting to us. And we put it all on a piece of paper and then it's left to who is ever teaching to kind of assemble that, those notes into a teaching. And we love doing that because we think many heads are better than one. And uh, a week and a half ago, our pastor of spiritual formation, Susan Bautirsa, was looking at Genesis 1 and she goes, it's so fascinating that says God made them in his image. Meaning that from the very beginning, there are multiple reflections of the image of God. That there's not just one standard status of what the image of God looks like, but there's male and female. There's difference and equal, equality of reflecting the image of God in different, unique, beautiful ways. And over time, this develops in like uh, ethnicity and socioeconomic status and personality type so that there's all these different expressions, but equal representation of the image of God. And this is part of what we hunger for in relationship. We look for people that are interesting and different and mysterious, but similar to us, and we're drawn to them magnetically. Why? Because we're relational beings, because from the very beginning, there are multiple expressions of the image of God, and it's almost like we're not looking for our better half. I don't think that necessarily exists, but we're looking for someone that offers us a fresh perspective and is different and challenging and that's all a part of being in a relationship and because it's all a part of being an image bearer let's check this out like ultimately this is connected to god because god is community father son and holy spirit So God created us in his image so that just as he is three and one, we also crave and long for this deep, integral, intimate connection with friends or spouses or family members because we're communal. This is why we promote anchor groups. It's not because we're desperately needing you to fill up our anchor groups. We think that actually all of us are desperate for community. And we're trying to offer that as much as we can. We're trying to provide that for us. These three questions that the image of God uniquely answers in all of us. What do I do? What's my purpose? Who am I with? The image of God answers those in a way that nothing else can. I'm gonna invite the band up right now and those helping with communion and prayer. Um, and I just want to note before I go on, it's like every week we have people available at these black walls that are willing and wanting to pray with you. Um, now, th- it can feel like a vulnerable thing to walk forward for prayer. But I would just say you're actually more vulnerable if you don't raise your hand and walk forward asking for prayer. You're vulnerable to your own brokenness, you're vulnerable to the enemy's attack. You're vulnerable to living with that hidden thing that you need prayer for, but you're not asking for prayer. So while it might feel vulnerable to walk towards a wall and ask for prayer, I think that it's the best type of vulnerability. It's interesting, um, uh, in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is like, um, is talking with the Pharisees and the Pharisees are like classic Pharisees trying to dupe Jesus um, and, uh, and trick him and trap him. And Jesus in classic Jesus form is like providing another Jesus juke. Oh, yeah, you thought you were gonna get me? No. Um, and so they ask Jesus, they're like, all right, Jesus, here's a coin. Do we pay, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And they know that they're gonna trick him. Because if, if Jesus says, yeah, we pay taxes to Caesar, then all the Jews are going to be angry with him. But then if he says, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, the Romans will be angry with him. So it's like one of those, you know, both directions don't work out very good. Jesus is classic. He says, can I, let me take, let me take a look at that coin. Who's, who's got a drachma, you know? So he, somebody passes it forward. He, well, he looks at it, and you can imagine this pregnant pause where Jesus is not rushed. He's not feeling like the pressure of time is weighing down on him. He's looking at this coin. Looking at something that he was there. When all creation was made, he, he saw the raw materials of this coin shaped and formed in the fabric of creation. And here he's looking at this coin and he says, whose image is on this thing? Like, what? what's the image? Somebody's like, total easy one, Caesar. And Jesus says, well, then give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what's God's. Now, typically when we hear this teaching, it's like this is like the argument for like how we should pay our taxes, which is fine. Um, but I think Jesus actually had something more profound in mind. Because what he didn't say But what he said, without saying it, was that, yeah, this coin may have Caesar's image on it and you can give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but you bear God's image. The coin's got Caesar's image, you got God's image and and what is God's, you better give to God's. Give yourself to God, give your gifts to God, give your time to God, give your energy to God, give your thoughts to God, give your relationship to God, give your dreams to God. Give your energy to God, give your passion to God, give your pain to God, give your sin to God, give your brokenness to God, give everything in your life to God. Here's why. Here's why. It's because the image of God that we spent this whole time talking about has been affected by sin. And the only place that the image gets restored is in the home of the image maker, in the place of the original creator. And so when we surrender ourselves to God and put ourselves in under his authority, he takes this broken image, blows the dust off, sands down the cracks, reframes, undoes the damage that sin has done, touches the place where trauma has kept us from joy and starts to remake this marred image into the original beauty he had always desired for it to reflect. You bloom when you surrender your whole life to the one who made you. How can we be assured of this? Because he first gave himself to us. Long before we were asked to give ourselves to him, he gave himself to us. We know this because in the gospels, Jesus Christ opened up his hands and said, do you want to know how much I love you? This is how much I love you with nails in his arms and blood coming down his body. And as he breathed his last, he showed us how much he loves us, that he surrendered himself up so that when we surrender ourselves, we only grow because he first died. The image is remade when we come to the image maker. And this is what we hear at the communion table. Christ's body given for you. Christ's blood shed for you. It's for you. It's for you. It's for you. It's for you. I think some of us in this room might come forward for the first time, as first time Jesus followers, to hear that God loves us enough to take our place and that we might give ourselves to him for the first time. Come forward when you're ready and know that you're created in the image of God and you belong in his healing hand.